Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Well, hey, we're back. It's Movie Oubliette, the transcontinental podcast for forgotten fantastical films, with me, Conrad, listening to Elgar by the Fireside in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, gently nodding to Gang of Youths in Melbourne, Australia. We focus on fantastic cinema, sci-fi, horror and fantasy for the most part, because we love spaceships that can be fixed by reversing the polarity, ghosts who just want their corpses to be found, and heroes who discover the magic was within them all along. <laughs> oh, well, that sums up all the movies. <laughs> Pretty much. How are you, Dan? Oh, very good. Very good. And you, Conrad? Yeah, still basking in the afterglow from our previous episode, which I really enjoyed. Oh, yes. Jacob was great fun, wasn't he? So much fun. He could keep talking to us for, for hours as well. Like, he was not ready to stop. <laughs> <laughs> he really wasn't, no. It was, I don't think it's giving away trade secrets to say that editing that episode was somewhat of a challenge because we spoke for, what was it, two and a half hours, I think? Mm. Yeah fascinating two and a half hours every minute yes i don't know whether we're going to be quite as fascinating without him today but we can give it our best shot (laughs) (laughs) so conrad have you seen any other non-oubliette films recently that you would recommend yes i do watch films other than oubliette films (laughs) sometimes yeah i went to the cinema and this is quite a good link up actually because you know that we were compared to uh, quite convincing compared us last week to adam and joe Mm. i forgot in trying to summarize their many achievements that joe cornish is actually a director now he directed attack on the block was his debut oh i love that film yeah it's a cool one yeah it's an alien invasion movie in inner city London, which is really cool. And I just went to see his latest film, which is an Arthurian legend fantasy, The Kid Who Would Be King. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, so that one's been whipping up a storm here because it's half term, so all the kids were off school. So, um. yeah, and it was, it was good fun. And it does have a fantastic character in Merlin, played by Angus Imrie and Patrick Stewart at different ages Mm, but every time angus is on the screen he sort of really injects life into it he's very funny so great yeah so that was that was pretty good fun Mm -hmm. anything in the mailbag today conrad Oh, well, I was very excited, actually. We had a fantastic response to our Phantasm episode. Ah, yes. We had a glowing review from Kristen Deem, who was Angus Scrim's friend, personal assistant on three of the Phantasm movies. So it's really exciting to hear from her. Wow. She said... I really enjoyed listening to this. You guys definitely enjoyed watching Phantasm, and it sounds like one of you did your research too, possibly reading the Phantasm Exhumed book, Proud of You. Oh. So I guess that would be you rather than I me. don't know. I, I don't think I have read that. <laughs> so she was pointing out that she thought that the film was more logical than I did, 
she said, for example, Jody facing down the Cuda with gun drawn was because he'd almost been run over by a driverless hearse in the previous scene. Mm. So understandably, he was a little bit wary of oh, his car okay. showing up. Yeah. Which, yeah, it's fair enough. But she says, you guys nailed it by understanding that Phantasm is all about atmosphere, not logic. This film is beautiful and oh, so very atmospheric. So, mm. yeah. It is. It's really great to hear from her. Yeah, that's amazing to hear. So, yeah, thanks, Kristen, for getting in touch. Mm, um, yes. So I suppose now we should turn our attention to whatever film it is we're going to be looking at today. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, uh, it's, a, it's a double blind film, actually. Double blind. Oh, God. So none of us have seen it, but uh, I will do the honours and retrieve it. <laughs> okay. Good luck. Okay. By the oubliette. Whoa. A lot of bright lights in here. Can't see a thing. <laughs> Well, watch out for the Black Panther. <laughs> How did that get in here? All right, just reaching in blindly. Okay, I think I've got it. Hopefully. Closing it now. Ah. Oh, I just felt something sticky. I am back. Gosh, that was bright. <laughs> it was. And so much wind as well. <laughs> so, so much wind. <laughs> so what, what has emerged from this blinding white... White light. Yes, well, I have with me the 1982 sci-fi horror Extra, mm. directed by Harry Bromley Davenport. It's a British film. With a name like that, it had to be really, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, so this film stars Philip Sayer as Sam Phillips, the father, Bernice Stegers as Rachel Phillips, the mother, uh, Simon Nash as Tony Phillips, the son, the little boy, Danny Brennan as Joe Daniels, the new boyfriend of Rachel, and finally, Mariam Darbo mm. as Annalise Mercier, the French oh. nanny. Oh, and... and- What's the story? The film opens to a father, Sam, and son, Tony, happily enjoying the English countryside. But after a freak and unexplained, seemingly extraterrestrial incident, Sam disappears, (laughs) vanishing into the bright lights. Three years later, things have moved on. Rachel, Tony's mum, has a new boyfriend, Joe, and they live together with a French nanny, Annalise, in an apartment in the city. Meanwhile, a mysterious creature crash lands and terrorizes the countryside, murdering a couple <laughs> and impregnating a woman. That woman subsequently gives birth to a full-grown man, who, as it turns out, is Sam, Tony's missing father. Oh. Sam reconnects with his stunned family and the film goes from bizarre to utterly insane. (laughs) Sam imbues Tony with superpowers. Um, Sam himself deteriorates into a rotting skeletal monster. There is a panther, (laughs) a spider-webbed cocoon, alien eggs, bright lights, and a portal to another world. What will happen (laughs) to poor little Tony? (laughs) God only knows. It sounds like social services should really intervene. <laughs> Definitely. That is what we have uh, for Extra. Oh, gosh, can't wait. <laughs> we'll be right back to talk about it.
All right, we are back to talk about extra mm. sci-fi horror film. We both had not seen this film, uh, so it was a nice surprise for both of us <laughs> to experience it. I do have to say in this film that it never actually explicitly states that these creatures are aliens. No. So that's uh, something interesting because uh, when it lands on Earth, I guess, it's just a big bright light. There's no mm. actual spaceship or anything. Um, I think I've read that a lot of people have compared it to like Lovecraft oh. and more like, you know, beings from another dimension mm. coming into our reality, I guess. Yes. So Conrad, yeah, what, what, you, what were your thoughts? Well, what were my thoughts? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's an odd one. It's a British horror movie, and it's one that I remember from my childhood as being something that was whispered about in the playground uh-huh. as this crazy movie, and I guess there were bootleg VHS copies of it being handed around. It almost got itself tangled up in the Video Nasty scandal. Mm, elaborate on the Video Nasties for those who, who don't know. So in the UK in the early 80s, companies were able to distribute videos without certification so although films were classified by the british board of film classification so 18 15 what have you Mm -hmm. videos because of a loophole in the law the law wasn't quite ready for vhs to arrive on the scene anything could go out so there were all these uncut movies like cannibal holocaust getting out there and anybody could get hold of them anybody could watch them you know so there's five-year-olds watching the evil dead and (laughs) yeah so there was a bit of a scandal and a backlash there was particularly a woman here called mary whitehouse who was on a crusade to get all these films destroyed and locked up and no kids should ever see these harmful degenerate movies and she was a bit of a bible basher too so it was quite a puritan campaign Uh and i think 72 films were put on a list of films that could be prosecuted under the obscene publications act Uh and extra didn't quite make that sort of top tier list it made it onto a list of a further 82 titles which White House didn't think she could get prosecuted, but could still be confiscated under the Section 3 obscenity charge or something. So it achieved some notoriety, shall we say. <laughs> I think it was famous for a couple of scenes. Uh-huh. The birth scene, I think, is quite infamous. Yes. So it's one that I've always wanted to see. So I was quite excited when it appeared from the Oubliette. And in the UK, Second Sight have just done a remastered Blu-ray with the soundtrack CD and very plush treatment for this British classic. Uh But I have to say my experience of watching the film was, (laughs) it wasn't quite what I was expecting. I don't know. What were you expecting? Well, I mean, I knew virtually nothing about this film. I knew that it was some sort of alien creature going around killing many people. Mm. And it was that Mm. for the first, I don't know, 15 minutes yeah. <laughs> and then it turned into something completely different and it's it's almost like the director took every idea that he could possibly think of mm. and just shoved it into this movie because <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's so many things that don't make any sense yes and there are so many things that happen 
that you have no idea what just happened <laughs> and then it's never talked about ever again. Yeah. One, for instance, Tony the boy, he wakes up, he's in bed and he's just covered in blood. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not his blood. No. The doctor checks him out. It's fine. He's fine. But where did the blood come from? No one knows. No one and, knows. And it's no. never talked about ever again. No. And there are many, <laughs> many, many scenes in this film where things like that just happen and it's never referred to ever again. <laughs> yeah. Well, it might have made sense if it had followed the scene where the alien is hit by a car. So the, the alien, I think, is his father returning from wherever it is he's been uh-huh. and he has a close encounter at the side of the road with a, a couple in a car. Uh-huh. So if you'd then cut to Tony waking up in bed saying, Daddy's hurt then it would have implied this, I don't know, psychic connection or, or whatever, and that's where the bloods come from. Okay. But it doesn't follow that scene. It follows the scene where the creature attacks this woman who lives in the grottiest cottage in England <laughs> that, that I've ever seen. And there's this random blonde living there alone with a shotgun and a dog. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> a dog called Divine, <laughs> and so you have that whole scene where the the creature attacks her and rapes her, and then you cut to Tony in bed covered in blood, and he says, "Daddy's hurt," and you think, "No, he's not. No, that was a couple of scenes ago." <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. It strikes me that not only has he thrown everything into this big pot and just stirred it to see yes. what will come out. It's also been edited all to hell because things just do not follow any kind of logical order. Mm. I mean, I don't really understand the creature itself. No. So the creature lands on Earth and starts just killing people mm. for no reason, really. No. The first person he kills is the... So the couple hit the creature on the road and the husband goes to investigate and he kills the husband by... I don't really know what happened. So, Spitting on his cheekbones, I think. Is, is that what happened? I thought like his tongue comes out and like stabs him in the face. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know how that would kill someone. I don't know. And then uh, the wife gets killed somehow. I don't don't really know how. No, but she gets her foot stuck in the steering wheel somehow and I have no idea how she does that. Yeah, exactly. And then the creature goes and... Uh, as you mentioned, rapes this blonde woman in her cottage Mm. by this strange protruding member (laughs) thing comes out of it and starts pumping eggs into her mouth. I don't don't really understand what happened there. And then she wakes up and the creature is now dissolved into a puddle of goo. Yes, that Divine is snacking on in the corner. Yeah, and then her her belly just grows... (laughs) instantaneously and she gives birth and then (laughs) Sam a full grown man comes out of her which is possibly the most shocking scene I've ever seen in a movie (laughs) and So what just happened? Like, is is was the creature Sam all along? Does he turn into something similar to that at the end? It's different again, isn't it? It's not the same thing. No, yeah, no. he's he's almost like a skeleton at the end. This kind of zombie skeleton, rotting flesh, yeah. thing. It's a complicated life cycle, isn't it? <laughs> it doesn't seem to like. It's not like Alien, right? Mm. In Alien, um, Prometheus, the alien every time it impregnates or lays its egg in another being, 
creature. Mm. It fuses DNA, but it wasn't really the same case. No. And was Sam Sam, or was that an alien version of Sam? Yeah. Because he had, like, lost memories, and mm. uh, he seemed a bit strange, and he eats snake eggs, and... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I was just trying to just wrap my head around, like, what was the intent of the creature? What was the creature trying to achieve in this entire story? Because in the end, complete spoilers, he walks off into the bright light sunset uh, with his son, who he's now turned into some sort of zombie creature thing mm. uh, like him. Was that his purpose to... I, d- <laughs> I, d- I honestly have no idea because they even have a conversation at one point when the son catches his father in the act of eating his pet snake's eggs. Mm. Although he doesn't actually catch him in the act, he just catches his father stood next to the tank with green gunk all over his face and hands. <laughs> yes. So how he immediately figures out what his father's done, I don't know. But he runs away and the father goes after him. Mm. And they have this really strange exchange where the father says to him, don't be scared. When I went somewhere else, they changed me so that I could live where I'd gone. So that means that he has to eat pet snake eggs. Mm. Yeah, sure. And snort gas from the fireplace as well, which (laughs) is something he does. I totally forgot about that scene. (laughs) (laughs) Which he does in private at one point. And the son seems... Fine with this. Mm. Uh, So Tony says to his father, right, do you like Annalise, the au pair? Which is a complete topic switch. I have no idea where that's coming from. And Sam says, perfect. It's just what we need. But you mustn't damage her. What? (laughs) So, But in any case, it ends up that the father changes the son by sucking his shoulder. Which bulges up in this big sort of pulsating lump. Yes. And then the son has telekinesis and can make anything come true, including bringing all of his toys to life. Yes. Including a dwarf clown, a black panther, and his action man, or G.I. Joe, for our American listeners. Yes. And then he sucks the au pair's midriff. And then she turns into a cocoon in the bathroom. <laughs> yes. But they never go back for her. They just leave her there and wander off into a bright light. And that's the end of the movie. So, yeah. What's the point? <laughs> yes, exactly. When the son, Tony, when he turns his toys into these life size uh, killing things they seem to have a mission yes that it's completely separate from tony because tony doesn't know what's going on he's just a boy with these superpowers yeah and they proceed to prepare annalise the nanny into some sort of big cocoon thing in which she starts birthing all these alien egg (laughs) things and then the dwarf turns the fridge into some sort of egg incubator and starts <laughs> placing them into it as if it knows what's going on. I don't, I don't understand. No. And I don't think this time 
it's because there is a crazy genius at work. And certainly there's nothing at the end that says it was all a dream, like phantasm. No, no. I genuinely think in this case it's just because it's a mess. And there are various <laughs> quotes that back this up from the director himself. Uh-huh. Harry Bromley Davenport is quite a character. Okay, yeah. So he says, We were just kids trying to shock people. I was disappointed in the end result and still am because I don't think I did that well personally. It was a mess. But at the time, I would have sucked Charlie Manson's dick for a shot at directing a movie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that sums it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the film actually came out of a relationship with Robert Shea, who was head of New Line, around about the time that it's distributing completed films like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but before the time where it's actually moving into production itself with Nightmare on Elm Street, mm -hmm. which of course made New Line into the massive multinational success that it became. So it's often referred to as the house that Freddie built. Oh, okay. And it's interesting that we're covering this movie so soon after Phantasm, because Phantasm was an inspiration point. Robert Shea was looking for a film like Phantasm that was batshit crazy, but had a couple of really shocking standout special effects sequences that people would talk about that he could then sell. Oh. His direction to Harry Bromley Davenport when they were doing their script writing sessions, mm -hmm. I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> by the director's own admission, stoned out of their minds, was, hey, let's put in a panther. What if there was a clown? They really did just throw everything at this film. Yeah. In terms of the success of the, the coherence of the final product, uh, Harry Bromley Davenport says, it's like a lovely film called Phantasm that made no sense and it was kind of boring because people all walked very slowly. It was absolute nonsense, but it did hold its own. And I never thought Extro did that. I always thought it was kind of clumsy. So it's directly related to Phantasm, but without Don Coscarelli's genius behind it. Um, I mean, like, I did still find it entertaining because... I had no idea what was going on. And every scene was just, okay, that just happened. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> what did I just watch? And there were lots of problems, even just production-wise. You could tell it was low budget, like mm. the tiniest budget. The sound was awful. And so many terrible ADR looping yes. uh, lines of dialogue. The, often you could hear the looping on top yeah. of actual location dialogue <laughs> as well. So you had two voices coming out of one person. It, uh, it was just horrendous. Yeah, the budget was £450,000 in 1982, which is the equivalent to £1.5 million or $2 million now. Uh -huh. It's a significant chunk of change, but it's not a huge amount of money. Yeah. But even then, I just imagine what somebody like Sam Raimi or Don Coscarelli could have done with that amount of money mm. compared with what we're faced with here. <laughs> yeah. You didn't have any idea what what the goals were for the creature. It wasn't mm. trying to multiply itself. It just seemed to kill people for no apparent reason mm. and then occasionally lay some eggs in them and then the eggs would 
you didn't know what the egg, like I guess the eggs hatched into more of these things I guess I don't know yeah and how did he give superpowers to Tony by just sucking on his shoulder and he didn't seem to have any superpowers so I don't really yeah didn't really understand yeah I, I don't mind it when you don't understand what the alien's doing it can be kind of fun so something like under the skin if you've seen that I have not seen that. <laughs> no. Uh, so that's an alien. Scar- is, is it Scarlett Johansson? I think it is, isn't it? Yes, I think it is. Yeah. yeah. So it's her wandering around England, luring men back to her flat or whatever they think for sex. But she does something to them, but it's visualised in a very abstract way. It's You always go to this other place that's just black uh-huh. and you see something shocking and horrific and deeply disturbing happen. Okay. But you have no idea why she's doing it, except you get a general sense that it's she needs to do it in order to stay alive. But she's also being pursued by someone. So you don't know if she's like a escaped alien criminal or it's not clear what's happening, but it's still fascinating and thrilling and disturbing and very atmospheric to watch Mm -hmm. and i think that's what we said about phantasm too is that it's confusing but it's still kind of atmospheric and fun to watch Mm. i'm not necessarily sure this one is atmospheric (laughs) i mean i think the score lets it down a little bit the score was actually done by the director himself so harry bromley davenport did Mm. the entire score and it sounds like he got one synthesizer and one drum machine (laughs) and just went to town just one evening recording for 10 hours or something. I mean, there is a musical theme though. There is a theme that recurs throughout the film. So at least there's a theme, but it kind of just sounds like he's just pounding away at a keyboard um, for hours. And, and a lot of scenes that just would have been better if they just didn't have the score. <laughs> yeah, or had a different score. Yeah, or had a different score. A lot of the action scenes, because generally action needs percussion. Mm. Percussion kind of pushes action scenes and makes them more energetic. Yeah. But there's no percussion in these action scenes. It's just him playing a, a ridiculous synth melody. <laughs> <laughs> and it completely sucks out all the energy from the scene. Well, it's just sometimes there is percussion in the drum machine that you mentioned. That's true. But it's sort of tinny, pre-programmed, early 80s synth loops, and yeah. they sound terrible, just really, <laughs> really bad. Yeah. It's like a Bon Tempe keyboard or something mm-hmm. with lots of hi-hats and thin, weedy kicks. Yeah. So a scene like the mum, Rachel, goes to school to pick up her son, Tony, and she's told by a teacher, your son was picked up by his father, a while ago, mm. which should be really disturbing and frightening. It should be a really tense scene. Yes. An unknown man pretending to be a father who's been missing for three years has collected your child. But first of all, Rachel doesn't look all that concerned. She looks kind of <laughs> bored. <laughs> she sort yes. of says to the teacher, did you see which direction they went in? And then looks as though she's sort of thinking about her shopping or something and wanders off before the teacher answers. Mm-hmm. And then you get a scene, a montage of her running around the back streets of London with this horrible Bon Tempe keyboard. Sort of <laughs> oh, it's terrible. And this is supposed to be the big dramatic reveal of there's her missing husband 
back from wherever. Mm. But it's, yeah, as you say, drained of all excitement by the terrible music. Yeah. I read somewhere that Harry Davenport himself actually described the music as screaming synthesizers, (laughs) which it often was. Like, often the music was just a lot of high frequency, just jarring, annoying synth and done in all the worst ways. Mm. You compare it to something like Razorback that we've covered in a previous episode. And that synth was very atmospheric and lots of delay and reverb. So it had kind of washed over you in this huge, great textural ambient tones and stuff. But this was not like that. No. And really just... (laughs) sucked out all the energy and made every scene seem very cheesy. Now it's time for Random Trivia! Okay, so I normally do this segment, uh, but I have no trivia, unfortunately. But Conrad, I I believe you have something. (laughs) I do, yes. So the actor who plays Sam in the movie, Philip Sayer, Mm -hmm. sadly, he passed away at a very young age. He passed away at the age of 42 in 1989. Rare cancer of some kind, poor guy. A terrible shame. And he was eulogised by Brian May in his 1992 album Back to the Light. Uh So the track on that album, Just One Life, is a tribute to Philip Sayer, who Brian May had never met or spoken to. Okay. (laughs) So I'm not quite sure why he did it. (laughs) Yeah, apparently Brian May went to the funeral. I don't know whether it's because his wife knew Philip Sayer, maybe, or I don't know. But he was at the funeral, and the whole song is about, I was at your funeral, everybody had nice things to say about you, I guess you were a nice guy. Shame you're not with us anymore. Okay. So there you go. <laughs> Good on you, Brian May. And that's my random trivia. Ooh. The film itself, to me, felt more 70s than 80s. Right, okay. Yeah, it had a very kind of proggy sound to the synth. And even how they dressed was just very 70s looking. It didn't scream 80s to me. Mm. It wasn't crazy big hair or anything. It was, I don't know. Well, I don't know. We have a fair few mullets and perms on display. Yeah. I mean, I actually find that kind of fun. It's sort of a time capsule that reminds you just how grotty Britain was in the early (laughs) 80s. Because... It looks like shit. It looks horrible. The houses are awful. Mm-hmm. The clothes are awful. The hair's awful. The cars are awful. Everything looks run down and crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That element of it's kind of fun for me to look back at mm. because this is all like my childhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's representative of, of, of the budget. Mm. Low budget films. They don't really spend a lot of time on props. So they, you know, that house was probably someone's house. Yeah. That they decided, hey, can we just, you know, borrow your apartment to film in? Just leave all <laughs> yeah. your stuff in there. That's fine. <laughs> but that cottage that the girl's living in at the beginning, all the fixtures are dirty. There's grime on the walls. All the furniture looks like it's 50 years old and threadbare. And I just wanted to take some disinfectant to it and scrub it down. It looked terrible. So that's kind of fun because you don't get a lot of British horror in the 80s. I was reading a book by Kim Newman called 
Nightmare Movies, which I highly recommend. Oh, okay. And he points out that Extro was one of only two theatrically released British horror movies in the 80s. Wow. So there's Extro in 82, and nothing else was released cinematically except for Hellraiser in 1987. Is that British? Hellraiser, yeah. Clive Barker, it's entirely British. But it has a weird mid-Atlantic feel, and a lot of the cast were ADR'd with American voices after the fact. Okay. So, yeah, Hellraiser is... uh, British production entirely. So fairly low budget. I love that film. Yeah, that I mean that's an undisputed classic, I think. <laughs> Extro, on the other hand. Yeah. So it is kind of a, a marvel that it came out at all. Yeah, right. There's that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Props for completing a film and releasing it. <laughs> yeah. Shall we talk about the special effects? Because I do think they were pretty good yeah that it's hit and miss isn't it so the sort of optical stuff like the arrival of the alien or the arrival of the creature from the lovecrafty another dimension <laughs> is this really bad matte painting with a glowing white triangle animated over the top of it yes yeah looks like total dog shit <laughs> but some of the creature effects have real ingenuity and verve to them. Um, so the first creature that you see is a mime who is walking upside down, if you can picture that. It, yeah. I've got shades of TikTok here where we were yeah. trying to describe the position of the guy that's inside TikTok in Return to Oz. I would describe him as holding the crab pose in yoga. Okay. <laughs> so if you look that up, the crab pose in yoga, that's exactly how he looked. Except they'd put some sort of face mask on the back of his head. Yes. So he looked like this weird gangly creature thing. Yes, that's walking in a strange way. And the fun thing about that is when you first see it, because you can't make sense of it, the human eye, you're just looking at this, trying to see a, a man in a, a suit. And because uh-huh. he's configured incorrectly, he's the wrong way around, it does confuse you. It does actually work in brief yeah. glimpses. Yeah, it does. I mean, the, the glimpse of him by the side of the road as the car tries to avoid him and hits him is actually quite disturbing, I thought, the first time I watched it. Oh, yeah. It was really convincing, actually. Um, and it made you think, what the hell was that? Mm. The trouble is, on second <laughs> viewing... Knowing what it is and how it works. Yeah, it just looks like a man. <laughs> yeah, all I can see now is a guy in the crab yoga position. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Me too, yeah. me too. So it works once. But still, <laughs> it only needs to work once, right, I guess? Yeah, that's true, that's true. As a cinematic experience. And the birthing scene, wow. I mean, that's still pretty confronting, I think is the word you would use. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in- including the so the impregnating scene and the birthing scene. But yeah, having a full-grown man burst out of a woman's belly is uh, mm. not the sort of thing you see every day. No. <laughs> I mean, logistically, it still doesn't make any sense, does it? Let's well, be honest. Well, y- yeah. <laughs> I mean, the lump that she has is not big enough well, not big for enough, a full-grown no. man. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, actually, it does remind me, there is a Japanese film um, by Takashi Miike that came out in like 2007 Ah. or something called Gozu. And it does have a woman giving birth to a full-grown man as well. Okay. And it's equally 
as disturbing. Not so bloody. No, but, it's uh... pretty gruesome. <laughs> <laughs> and kudos to the actress that's doing that scene because I think she sold it. She did. Yeah. I mean, the creature that we described, the, the crab pose creature, the face was fine. Mm. In a still photograph, it looks great. Yeah. But because there was hardly any movement in the face of the creature, <laughs> it just looked like you were looking at a dummy. Yeah. And so in that respect, it was kind of a, oh, yeah. I wish to just spent a little bit more money on that. <laughs> yeah, and, and there you can see the sort of exploitation roots of it because it's just Bob Shea trying to get a great poster you know, he's got his still image for the poster yep. and lots of great stills that can get bums on seats and get the money, exactly. but not actually delivering the goods once you're there, maybe <laughs> as much. Yeah. And some of the, the effects with the toys coming to life, I think particularly the makeup on the full grown action man is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Although I don't understand why he behaves like a robot. No, I don't understand that either. And the sound effects for him were just shockingly bad it sounded like they'd put like a machine sound and they'd recorded it in some sort of metal tube and then they just clacked a whole bunch of spoons on top of it it didn't mesh with what i was watching no. it just sounded like what is that noise that i'm hearing right now yeah so i would have expected him to make sort of i don't know plasticky creaking noises i think that would have been really creepy yeah yeah but no i think visually he looked Really creepy. Yeah. He looks like a toy soldier, but fully grown. Yeah. <laughs> and and the way it moved was really creepy as well. Mm. Um, but of course, the, the soundtrack was terrible in that scene. And the sound effects of the guy were, were terrible. Mm. And I was kind of laughing because it was, <laughs> was supposed to be terrifying, but it was the furthest away from terrifying to me. Yeah. Um, I think also because it was so brightly lit as well. Mm. So he wasn't, you know, in the shadows. He wasn't, um, they didn't have that sort of atmosphere of darkness. It was completely brightly lit. (laughs) Yes. I don't know. But not in the new director's version that is included on the Blu-ray. So there are two versions. Really? And I am so pleased that I watched the original version first. Right. Because I took a quick look at the new director's version where he has altered the lighting. So in that scene, for example, it's all sort of covered in darkness and there are sort of added smoke elements because there's a, he uses an explosive to blow down the door, but then in the reverse shot, there's no smoke. So he's added digital smoke. And But the trouble is that this new version, it looks like somebody who's not very technologically capable using iMovie. (laughs) He's pumped up the contrast on the whole movie to the point where it's posterized. Like it looks like 16-bit color in some cases. It's just like solid blocks of fluorescent (laughs) colors and added elements like smoke that are clearly fake and been added in later. Oh, no. And on the opening titles, it's got like this light bleeding effect on the white credits rather than just normal white credits. And it just looks like he just like pressed the Superman plug in. Oh, no. Do not watch (laughs) that version. Okay. And certainly do not buy this Blu-ray to get the 2018 director's (laughs) version. It's 
awful. Oh, no. And actually, the job they've done on restoring the original version as it was is fine. It's not that washed out. It just looks like film. Yeah, right, right, right. Okay. So the special effects are variable. The ones that are good are actually really striking. And Mm. I can see that Bob Shea got what he wanted, which is a few scenes that people would always be talking about i mean the scene with with annalise and she's been turned in this big spider webbed cocoon thing and she's um pumping out all these eggs it looks really creepy Mm. it doesn't really make sense in the the scheme of the actual (laughs) film itself no like the the creature is not spidery or insect like at all there's never any webbing at all throughout the entire film until that one scene and they leave her behind anyway so I'm not quite sure why they do that to her. Yeah. It's not like they harvest the eggs and start sending them around the country or anything. It's just, I don't know. But it looks good. (laughs) It looks great. And very uncomfortable for Miriam Darbo, actually. Oh, really? This is her first movie. Yes. So she's cocooned up like that and she's actually sitting on a bicycle seat and she was there for hours. Oh. That's not good. No, I should know. (laughs) She ended up being a Bond girl, of course in The Living Daylights with Timothy Dalton Ah, in 87. Right. Yeah, so you're not a comfortable scene for a future Bond girl. No, no, no. no. A very good effect, even if it doesn't make any sense. I did like uh, the sort of makeup effects on um, Sam as he was kind of deteriorating in this kind of zombie creature that wasn't explained again. No. Like, why, why was he rotting away? I don't know. And then he he passed it on to his son as well, who was also rotting away. Why was he doing that? Why did he want his son to rot away? (laughs) I don't know. Do you know there's one shot where somebody's face is melting and and there's a skull being revealed under it. Is that him or is it the son? I thought that was him. I, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> because then you cut to the sun later and the sun's a bit of a mess too, so I don't know what's happening. Yeah. No. Yeah, and then they just they get sucked up into the bright light, I guess. Yes. I'm I'm just assuming they just didn't really have a explanation for the bright light. You know, it wasn't a UFO, it wasn't a spaceship, it wasn't a portal. It was just a bright light, like literally <laughs> and a triangle. Yeah. What what was the triangle? <laughs> It wasn't even a doorway. It wasn't a portal. It was just a hovering bright triangle. None of those (laughs) scenes made much sense. I mean, the father's abduction scene right at the very beginning, they're throwing a stick for a dog and the stick (laughs) pauses in midair and then a bright light happens. And then I was reminded of your description of the finale of Phantasm. Lots of wind and shouting (laughs) and people holding on to trellises. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then the father was gone, I guess. And it wasn't, there was no sort of transition. It was a father and son just happily playing in the countryside in the broad daylight. Mm. He throws a stick for the dog. Why would he throw the stick on top of the roof of the house for the dog <laughs> to retrieve anyway? That made no sense. And then the stick just <laughs> seems to hit something in the air, explosion, and then suddenly it's nighttime and wind and bright lights. Like, what? Yes. Just straight away craziness. Yeah. And then the horror trope that always happens, the boy wakes up and it was a nightmare, but um, it was just, you know, him recalling his trauma, I guess. From three years ago, even though he hasn't aged 
at yeah. all, which, <laughs> which is interesting. That's very true. I didn't notice that. Yes. The kid also, Simon Nash, he, he gets increasingly fat as the film progresses. Right. Did you notice? <laughs> Did not notice that, actually. <laughs> so this is one of the things that Harry Bromley Davenport fixes in his new 2018 director's edition. He oh, actually yes. squeezes the picture to try and make no, the kid look thin. <laughs> no, that's terrible. So the ending, there are three different ones. <laughs> Which one did you see? So in my ending... Tony and Sam walk off into the bright light mm-hmm. and then it shows Rachel distraught on the field. She slumps down and then it goes, fades to black. And then she goes back to the apartment and she opens the door and it's bright white. <laughs> and it's just the fridge on the floor with the eggs incubated into it. And she grabs an egg and it's all jelly-like for some reason. Mm. And then it just explodes. And then one of those face hugger members comes out of it and attaches it to her face and then she falls on the ground and it's like sucking i don't know yes or pumping eggs into her and then credits yeah so that's one ending uh-huh. the original ending was she went home and all the eggs are hatched and she has dozens of tonys right. all around her all chanting mommy 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 Wow, that would have been crazy. Yeah, which it would have been really creepy. The problem with it is, is that it's obviously just a bunch of kids wearing very unconvincing masks. Oh, no. <laughs> so Bob Shea was really <laughs> let down by that. So he cut the ending off entirely. So in America, when it came out originally, she sees her husband and son wander off into a bright light, collapses oh. in a field, cut to black, credits. And oh. that was the end of the movie. Okay. And Harry Bromley Davenport wasn't satisfied with that, so he went back and filmed the ending that you saw, which I think ended up being the ending on most versions ever since ah, then. okay, right, right, right. Yeah. Right. So I suppose, yeah, the eggs have a purpose. Although I would have thought that the mother would have been in trouble anyway because she has sex with Sam Yes. when he's already falling to pieces and presumably... Yeah. Is impregnating her or infesting her in some way. He certainly seems very determined to finish when she's no longer in the mood because she's discovered that he's rotting in various (laughs) different places. Always a mood killer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And no should mean no, people, but he carries on anyway. Yes. Yeah, it's not a nice scene. So, yeah, I would have thought that was the trick, that he came back as the husband and infested his wife. But, no, she gets attacked by a water balloon with a tentacle in it. <laughs> with a, yeah, with a, an obvious alien rip-off facehugger. Yeah, plunger to the face. Yeah. I think this film was trying to be like Phantasm, but also very, very much trying to be like Alien as well. Mm. A lot of very similar imagery yes but at the same time i kind of i found it similar to films like the fly Mm. he's slowly transforming into something else yeah and and what cronenberg did with the fly is take this body horror and put it into a relationship movie and you can argue that that's kind of what harry bromley davenport is doing here because Mm. the thing we haven't talked about is that sam coming home Three years later, when the mother has moved on and has a new boyfriend, mm-hmm. Joe. So you have this tension there, this sort of triangle 
where the father is trying to reintroduce himself into the life of his family. And Joe obviously resents this. So you've got this sort of family drama thing going on that's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. And there are some good moments in the film. I mean, I think the scene where... Tony calls for daddy because he's had a nightmare again. And all of the adults are around the kitchen table at the time having dinner. And both Sam and Joe stand up at the same time because Joe has obviously been responding to calls for daddy for three years or so. Mm -hmm. And then realises that Sam is now back to take on that role. So he slowly sits back down in his chair and gives way. Mm. There are little moments like that that are good sort of visual storytelling and quite interesting in terms of drama and family dynamics. Mm. But it's kind of undermined by the fact that the scene before that, they were arguing. Joe had childishly announced that Rachel and he were going to get married and Sam throws a wine bottle at him <laughs> and they've both stood up from their chairs and Joe has just called Sam a maniac mm. or something who's out of control. Then you cut to the Tony having the nightmare. Then you cut back. And they're sitting down again. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah. doesn't work, does it? That doesn't make any sense at all. No. So I'm, I'm sort of trying to defend the film by saying there are some nuances and some interesting family dynamics going on in there, but actually it's so poorly executed again that it doesn't really work. Yeah, I mean, we, we could talk about like the overarching theme or morals of the film as well. Mm. So you've got a boy suffering from trauma from his father disappearing and not being there and then being replaced by joe the new boyfriend but obviously tony isn't really hasn't really connected with joe and is still sort of pining for his his lost father Mm. and then having his father come back but then his father being very very strange and tony trying to connect but also realizing this is not really my father anymore but then he kind of submits and then Sam turns him into a super-powered alien creature thing. Mm. <laughs> I guess it brings him to the dark side. So Tony is fully invested with Sam, his father, and completely pushes away Joe and Rachel, his mum. Mm. Okay, so so what's the theme here? What's, what's, the, what's the moral <laughs> of the story here? <laughs> I don't know. It's a mess, isn't it? I mean, there are some nice hints of Oedipal aspects here because you have the scene where the monster is raping the woman in the cottage. You cut from that to Tony, who's obviously been woken by a nightmare, interrupting Joe and his mother mid-coitus. There's a definite Oedipal parallel going on here. And when you've got a father sucking on his son and impregnating him and bringing him over to the side. There's all sorts of weird psychosexual family dynamics going on here, but it's also haphazard, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, if they'd played it, say Joe and Rachel are the protagonists, and it's entirely from their perspective, and this man coming back insinuating himself into the family, you could have this whole metaphor of an old relationship reinvading your lover's life Uh and threatening and insinuating itself in with the child. And you could see that as being sort of that great thing that horror and fantasy and sci-fi do, which is that they use a ridiculous fantasy thing to talk about something that's very real Mm, that you would feel in that situation. But it doesn't do that. that, Who is the protagonist in this movie? Yeah. Who are we supposed to be rooting for here? I guess it would be Tony. Mm. Tony and Sam. Yeah. 
but also Rachel. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I guess the three. And sort of Joe, because Joe's not a dick. I mean, it's not like those rom-coms where you meet the main character and the guy that she's engaged to has got dick tattooed on his forehead. It's just, <laughs> I am the wrong guy. Yeah, and yeah. then she meets somebody else. Yeah, so sure, you're sure. not all that worried when she finally sheds the previous one. You know, mm. It's not like that. Joe no. seems like a fairly decent guy when he's not childishly announcing engagements at dinner parties no i mean i guess you could say that maybe it's about yeah the father-son relationship and that being important i guess (laughs) i mean they they run off into the bright light together so but what does that mean (laughs) i'm I'm trying to make sense i'm i'm really trying to figure out the intent of the film was there a reason for this film (laughs) No. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. It's awards season, and we don't want to miss out here on Movie Oubliette, so we're handing out awards for some of our favourite moments from Extro in the most spurious categories imaginable. Kicking off... With favourite quote, Dan, do you have a favourite line of choice dialogue from Extro? The masterpiece that is Extro. (laughs) My favourite quote was, uh, so this is after Tony had woken up covered in blood and he's been Mm. checked over by a doctor, the most unprofessional, uncaring doctor in the world, (laughs) um, (laughs) making sure Tony's not hurt anywhere, he's not in pain, and then... The doctor asks Tony, and where did the blood come from? And then Tony says, I don't know. The doctor says, from you? Tony says, daddy sent it. The doctor says, how did he send it? And then Tony says, don't know, just felt something sticky. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Oh dear, yes, waking up. Feeling something sticky. Mm, that's sticky. Mm. I'm just covered from head to toe in blood. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, your favourite quote, Conrad? So my favourite quote is in the breathtaking high culture scene where we see one of Joe's photo shoots happening. And Joe is obviously deeply involved in high fashion. <laughs> and he is photographing a woman's foot in a high-heeled shoe next to a mug of beer. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea why. But this model is so obsessed with food, which is odd for a model. She's eating a sandwich and uh, she is very reluctant to give it up, even though they're worried about crumbs getting on the shoe. Mm -hmm. So they finally take it away from her. And what's great is that later on, when Joe is having a very serious conversation with Rachel, you can hear Adyard in the background, the model shouting, Kev, give me back my sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) So... Very classy. Sandwich obsessed girl from Essex <laughs> with a shoe next to a pint of beer. Honestly, uh, this movie. So good. Talking of fashion, hair and costume. Did you have a favourite hair and or costume combo in this movie? Um, I, I just I just couldn't take my eyes off Tony's hair. So he's got almost a bowl cut, <laughs> but not quite. <laughs> It's very Beatles-esque or, I guess, Brady Bunch-esque. It's just a mop 
with a long fringe and it's probably every single boy's haircut of that year. <laughs> yeah, in 1982. Yes. Yeah. Back in those days, kids didn't necessarily have styled hair. They just had hair. <laughs> yeah. And uh, your favourite hair costume? Uh, well, I can take my eyes off of Rachel's lovely sweater dress that she's wearing in the second act, oh. which is this enormous shapeless mass of knitted stuff that's divided into four quarters of hideous mismatching colors you have red you have blue you have yes. green and you have purple not yellow i was shocked that there wasn't any yellow mm. it's gaudy does nothing for her figure and it's very 80s i thought yeah just foul Sure, very foul. Actually, this leads on very nicely to the next category, most 80s moment. Mm. But I would say this was almost more 70s, but there was a tremendous amount of knitwear. Um, just <laughs> every single yeah. character was wearing a woolly jumper. And yeah, I know UK, is, it's cold. You need a jumper, but so much wool everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, one of the first things that Rachel does to make Sam feel at home is give him a good chunky knit cable sweater. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was your most 80s moment? I, I would have to say the rotary phones. There's a lot of rotary phone action mm. in this movie. Can you believe that you used to physically dial numbers with an actual dial yeah. and wait for it to the sort of that, slowly yes. click back into place. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, I also noticed each phone had a chair sitting next to it because you would have to sit down <laughs> and take the call. Yeah, of course, yeah, because it was wired and you couldn't wander around until... No. Later on in the 80s, where you had those phones with enormous cords that you see American teenagers getting tangled up in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In exactly. John Hughes movies and so on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Lots of rotary phones in this movie. So, scene. Did you have a favorite scene in this movie with a rotary phone or without? Uh, with, without a rotary phone. I actually quite liked uh, the killing Michael scene, even though you never actually saw him being killed. So, Michael was the boyfriend of Annalise. Oh, yeah. She'd just been knocked on the head by the, the clown and, and turned into some sort of webbing. Um, <laughs> so Michael goes to investigate and he's met by a little tiny toy tank that proceeds <laughs> to shoot him uh, with, I guess, <laughs> tiny little, I don't know, ballistic cannon... Explosives. Explosives. Yeah, they look pretty powerful, almost as powerful yeah. as a shot. It's a shotgun. So he's he's yeah. fleeing from this tank. He runs into the bathroom and he discovers his girlfriend in this cocoon, which is you've never <laughs> seen before. So that was odd. There's still a barrage of cannon fire from this tank. So he's running away. He runs into the living room and he's met by a panther which you've never seen before, <laughs> and the panther pounces on him. I just thought that scene was, it was, it just escalated so quickly. You know, tank, yeah. cocoon girlfriend, panther. <laughs> <Yeah>. and, 
Just very, uh, I don't know, unexpected, surprising, batshit crazy. Uh, I thought it was actually kind of filmed quite well as well. Like a lot of the shots were from the, the tank yeah. point of view. So, you know, down down yeah. by the ground, like kind of like Chucky, how Chucky was filmed. Mm. Yeah, kind of just ridiculous and kind of fun and action-packed. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and if you want a good denouement for your action scene, I think Random Panther is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, your favourite scene, Conrad? Well, mine is another one of Tony's random murders using toys, which is the scene with the action man attacking the nosy neighbour downstairs. Ah, yes. The reason I love it is because, first of all, I think the, the full-grown action man is is pretty disturbing but the whole as you've said the way the scene is shot is not disturbing at all but i just love how illogical the whole thing is so she there's there's the neighbor who who is best known in this country for playing the character lou beale in eastenders for something like 30 years so she's like a very familiar face and all of a sudden she's being chased around her house by a full-grown action man Uh and so she runs away from him and hides under the sofa, we're led to believe, although how she gets there, being an old lady or an elderly lady, I'm mm. not quite sure. And then she gives away her position by reaching out and taking a chocolate that's fallen on the floor, presumably to eat it. So he sees that she's there, so he bayonets her through the sofa and the noise yes. that she makes is more sort of a put out than screaming. So it's a sort of, oh, <laughs> just slightly annoyed. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, damn, I was going to eat that truffle. You know, what? Oh, devoid of any tension or it's like you said, it could have been a really scary scene. But yeah, I was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed that scene. I was yeah. I was laughing throughout. Considering how off the wall this movie is, is there a horror cliche at play that you noticed? I would go down the sci-fi route, actually, and say The okay. Bright Lights was uh, the most <laughs> sci-fi cliche. Just all the bright lights. That very uh, yeah. blue-tinged light just everywhere. Yes, I think Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters is probably the source of all of this, isn't it? Yeah. Sure, exactly. Well, for me, I went for a horror cliche and I went for woman is told to stay in the car. (laughs) And she doesn't. (laughs) And she doesn't, never does. But man shouting at a woman, stay in the car. Mm. And then she ends up in a battle with an alien and gets her foot stuck in the steering wheel. And I have no idea how. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So, effect. Did you have a favourite effect in this movie? I think maybe it goes without saying. The birthing scene. uh, Mm. Pretty shocking. And I think it was shocking because of the effect. Like, it was a very well done effect. I mean, my eyes were wide open. And my mouth was just, what am I watching (laughs) right now? (laughs) For me, it was the full-sized extra with a man walking upside down in a crab yoga position. I think Uh, just that shot where he's on the side of the road and you just catch him in the flashlights and he's moving in an odd way, I think that's a really good disturbing image until you figure out what it is. Yeah. (laughs) And all you see is a man in the crab position. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Did you have a favourite sound? 
Oh, so much bad sound in this film. (laughs) But actually, there was one sound, and I think they were going for creepy. So this is uh, the caretaker has been called to check on Tony in the apartment. So he goes up, and and then there's no answer, so he just gives up and goes back downstairs, I guess. (laughs) Uh, So he goes down the elevator, and the lights go off, and then the elevator doors open, he walks out, and the sound that they've put there is actually the sound of a kookaburra, which is a a native Australian bird. It's the call of the kookaburra, which does actually kind of sound quite strange to someone that's never heard that sound. Uh, It kind of sounds like a monkey laughing, but it's not. It's a bird. (laughs) And it's a very iconic sound in Australia. So for me to hear that in what was supposed to be a horrifying, tense scene just made me think of camping and the bush (laughs) (laughs) and summer. (laughs) So very out of place uh, for probably all Australians are watching that movie. (laughs) Okay, yeah. It's completely broke the mood, I guess. (laughs) Completely. And then he's not attacked by a kookaburra, he's attacked by a yo-yo with blades on it. (laughs) Something you've never seen before, just attacks him and you never see it again. Yes. No. <laughs> that. <laughs> what was your favourite or worst sound effect? Oh, for me, it was just the worst sound ever. And <laughs> in all the films we've seen, I thought this was probably the worst sound. And for me, the thing I got most tired of was all the slurping and sloshing uh, yes. and squishing. Mm. Just constant wet slimy noises even when things weren't moving or anything was happening you would just get these horrible slurpy noises oh yeah yeah i got tired of it very quickly so funniest scene is there a scene that you found funnier than any other i found so this i don't know i think maybe unintentionally funny so tony's snake pet snake uh, i don't know how how common that is in the uk to have a pet snake but anyway his pet <laughs> snake is, his pet snake escapes and slithers itself into the downstairs neighbor's uh, apartment mm. and then she discovers it wriggling around in his salad um, so she proceeds <laughs> to clobber it to death with a meat tenderizer uh, and then and then after it's just pulverized she goes upstairs to the apartment of, of Tony, Sam and, and Rachel and hands over the bloody plastic bag of snake pulp. And then she declares, <laughs> I believe this belongs to your son. <laughs> Which is, that must have been the most traumatizing thing for Tony to see his pulverized pet in a bloody plastic bag. <laughs> But the thing is, the mother shouts, Harry, which is the name of the snake. But how does she recognise it when it's just a plastic bag full of red marsh? Yes, And the neighbour doesn't say what it is. No, no. I believe this belongs to your son. What, something you've bought in the butcher's shop? What is that? (laughs) Oh, that's terrible. That was mine as well, actually. Really? Yes, it was. I was so pleased that you picked that because I hadn't, didn't want us to go without commenting on the ridiculous exchange in that scene so crazy okay and that's our meal please yay
Welcome back, and it's time for the final verdict. Dan,、mm. do you think Extro should be birthed, full-grown into the world, and released <laughs> to wreak terror on scabby '80s England, or do you think it should be shot at by a toy tank and eaten alive by random panther? <laughs> <laughs> This is a double-blind special,、yes. so neither of us had seen this before. Coming to it cold.、Mm. What's your verdict, Dan? What do you think? I mean, it's a terrible film. Let's be honest. It's a, <laughs> it's a terrible, terrible film. Production-wise, story-wise, acting-wise,、mm. music-wise, there's there's not a lot going for this movie. But it's very entertaining if you just <laughs> absorb the terribleness. And it's it's kind of <laughs> one of those so bad it's good movies, but it's pretty bad, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs>、um, yeah, I don't know. It's that's my short and sweet verdict. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. So you're throwing it back in? Yeah,、think? I think I have to. I mean, I kind of did enjoy it, and I'm glad I've I watched it. I think it's it's worth a watch, but poor,、mm. it's pretty. Pretty horrendous. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think if you're trying to find a single redeeming feature in this movie, it is probably the one or two scenes that all your friends were talking about in the playground at school when it was sort of, "Oh, have you seen Extra? Have you seen it on video? I've got a bootleg."、Mm. Yeah, and I think that's what Robert Shea was after. That's what they delivered. But on the whole, it's a fun time capsule into early '80s Britain. It's a terrible piece of filmmaking, <laughs> with terrible performances, god awful music, and makes no sense whatsoever. And there is nothing going on in terms of subtext or themes, as the director freely admits.、Mm. And I. I just I didn't enjoy watching it. I, I'm as you say. I'm glad I did. I'm seen it now. I've got the bloody special edition now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with that. But no, I don't think I'm doing a very good job, as Jacob said, of trying to disguise my final verdict here. I think this thing should be tossed into the oubliette. Post haste, frankly, and、mm. never spoken of again. <laughs> yeah, you can't interpret this film in any way apart from here's a crazy scene followed by another crazy scene, and that <laughs> and that sums up the film. <laughs> I think it should definitely get chops for having random panther. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's throw it back in.、No. Come here. Oh, in you go, into another dimension of bright light. Indeed, rotting as you go. <laughs> so I guess、uh, now we should talk about what we're going to review next time.、Mm. And we have a a special way of deciding the next film as well. We do, yes. So we thought it would be kind of fun if, rather than us picking the movie or our guest picking the movie,、mm-hmm. we thought we'd throw it open to our listeners to give us some titles of movies that they would like us to look at. And we had a really good response. We have arrayed these films over a new device we have in the studio called.
rolls off the tongue. Mm, does. So I guess we should spin that roulette. Let's do it. Ooh. Ooh. What's the film? Well, Isaac last name is going to be very pleased with us because it is Push. Ah. A 2009 fantasy action movie directed by Paul McGuigan, which I have not seen. Have you seen this movie? I have actually, but I haven't seen it for a while. I think I saw it when it came out. So it's a superhero film and it stars Chris Evans. Ooh. Pre-Captain America, Chris Evans, Dakota Fanning, Camilla Bell and Jimon Hunzu. Mm-hmm. And it's about a group of people born with various superhuman abilities who band together in order to take down a government agency that's using a dangerous drug to enhance their powers in hopes of creating an army of super soldiers. It's sounding very Fury-like, isn't it? <laughs> It's sounding uh, pretty much like a lot of superhero movies. <laughs> <laughs> As we said. But we'll see. Oh, well, great. So we shall look forward to that. In the meantime, if you have any other titles that you would like us to throw on to the Oubliette Roulette, let us know. Uh, we are at Movie Oubliette on all of our socials, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, if you'd like mm. to check us out there. And also movie.oubliette at gmail.com if you want to email us. And don't forget to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice because that really helps us out. Mm, And please share us to as many people and friends and family you know. And strangers. Yes. Anyone, really. (laughs) Yeah. Just pick up their phone and subscribe (laughs) them to the podcast while they're not looking. It'll be a surprise. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, this has been fun. Thanks again for joining us. Goodbye. Bye for now. Review the films of this